0: Hey, everybody. It's been a really long time, and it feels good to dust off the microphone and get back into the podcasting game. I'm your host, Aaron Broadus, and welcome back to another episode of the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast. This episode is recorded on November 22nd, 2021, and it's our first episode since early May of this year, where Greg Labani of Maine Fly Guys and myself, we did our fish series where we highlighted Maine's premier fish to target on a fly rod, and we took a big break there due to some supply chain issues and due to just fishing season. Everything stops for fishing season. So, uh, But winter's rolling back around, and I'm excited to get back in the swing of things and interview folks in Maine who are they're putting our great state on the map in the fly fishing industry. There's some really cool things I'm excited to share with you guys. and. Uh, I have a bunch of interviews lined up for this winter, so stay tuned and follow us on Instagram at the Main Fly Fishing Podcast for announcements on those episodes. Today's episode features John Larrabee, owner of HMH Vices in Biddeford, Maine. His vices are 100% made in Maine and in several communities across the state. And today we're also joined by Nate White, who runs the pro staff and heads up the social media duties for HMH. John's story is inspiring, and his hard work ethic and passion are easy to recognize when you hear him speak. I really think you'll enjoy this episode. Why don't you go ahead and start off, just tell us, where did you
1: grow up? Well, uh, I didn't grow up in a fishing or even an outdoors family at all. Um, my dad was a teacher at Milton Academy in Milton, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. head of the history department there. And it was just kind of by coincidence, a colleague of his came up to our cottage here in Maine and was like, he was a big fisherman, so he bought us fishing rods, so... yeah. I think this was probably about 1975, so I was about five years old, and that's where it kind of started.
0: Uh, where was your camp? Uh, it was our cottage right here at Kenyman Port. Okay. So. You notice how um, I didn't call it a cottage. <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> the I'm cottages are on the coast. The that's camps are right. inland. <laughs> that makes sense. But, yeah, I uh, guess you can't have a nice camp on the coast of Maine. That doesn't sound right. No, yeah, it, it's gotta I be mean, in the woods.
1: That was always our differentiation. Was you that's know awesome. the cottages around the coast. Yeah. Do you still own that? Yeah, that's where we actually live now. That's where you live. Nice. Yeah. Um, it's kind of cool history fact that that house was actually bought by the family in 1894. Wow. And we still live there. That's awesome. Um, so, yeah, it was only about nine years ago we moved back up or here. We, uh, my wife and I, decided Bain was where we wanted to raise our kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so. We originally, right after we were married, were up here. Then I got tempted back to Connecticut um, after Milton Dad went to another private school in Northeast Connecticut, Pomfret School, um, and that's where I kind of spent my teenage years. Um, and uh, then went on to school at WPI in Worcester.
0: Nice. So that's so, not far from where you. No, that
1: wasn't. That, that was problem. only, uh, you know, only about forty minutes from where I was grew
0: up, yeah. you know, teenage years, grew up. And, were you uh, coming up here a lot during college?
1: Um, certainly every summer of my life we were here, you yeah. know. Um,
0: you Because know. your dad was off from teaching, right? Exactly. We had the summer so off, come up
1: and, and we'd uh, we'd come up, and e- we'd easily spend, you know, all of August. And with the private school world, it was nice, because back then in the 70s and early 80s, they wouldn't go back to school till the mid or even third week of September that's great so all the public schools would go back you know in and around the labor day, labor day that's pretty typical and we'd have two maybe three weeks where it was just almost a private beach for us that's great which was really cool
0: were you so,
1: fishing were you fishing um by the time yeah by the time I was 10 15 years old I was fishing yeah um, when we moved to Pomfret was where I hooked up with, uh, another colleague of my dad's who really taught me how to fly fish. How old were you? And we moved there in 80, so I was 10 years old. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, about then, 9, 10 years old was when I started fly tying and fly fishing with this guy. Yep. Um, and then when I was... Fourteen. One, the guy who was head of the science department at Pomfret ran a camp in northern Canada, three hundred miles north of Toronto. Jesus. And this was a camp that really specialized in outdoors, canoeing, camping, fishing, and all. Um, we'd known about the camp because, ironically, the head of the uh, science department at Milton also was involved with the camp.
0: So, is this, so for, this was for, like, kids, though? Wasn't this like a was watch? for kids, yep. Cool.
1: Um, and uh, so at 14, I went up there for six weeks. Wow. And went on, you know, I, at that point, I'd been in a canoe once in my life.
0: Yep. Before that. Nate was born in a canoe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Pretty yeah.
1: much. Pretty
0: much, yep. A little different. So,
1: you know, I, you know, hopped on a bus and 14 hours later was 300 miles north of Toronto in, you know, where you had to take a ferry boat over to the island where the camp was. Yeah. And two days later I was out on a 10 day canoe trip. Wow. And that ended up, I went three years there kind of as a camper Mm. Um. Shortest trip I went on was 10 days. Longest trip I went on there was the whole summer, which was 42 days living out of a canoe. We started about 150 miles north of Thunder Bay, Ontario. Yep. On, what, June, June 20th, I think it was. We ended up flying out of Hudson's Bay
0: on August 8th. That's a long way to go. We went... I think it was something like 1,200 miles. Wow. Did you have people meeting you at, like, checkpoints with food and stuff like that? We went
1: through two Indian communities, population, I think the most was 100 people. Yeah. We bought, I think it was a case of oranges and (laughs) um, just some basic staples and everything else we carried with us for 42 days.
0: Wow. So... Were you feeling skinny after that trip? Oh, yeah, I was skinny. Yeah, no, not this figure. <laughs> yeah, well, I can imagine. You can't carry that much with you for that long. Actually, <coughs>
1: on 42 days um, is where I picked those up. Um, Sweet. I've got the pair of moose antlers behind me here. Yep. That actually was a pair of moose skulls locked together. Wow. And the other pair that went with that was about a third again bigger. And we had two portages left, one of which was like almost oh, a did kilometer. You have room to put those in there. You made room. <laughs> put them on top of the boxes that we had all the store. Yeah. Food and all that stuff. Wash them down. But uh, I was the one who, uh, my Bauman and I were the one who spotted the rack yep. on the side of the river, and so I got first pick. I picked the smaller of the two because I didn't want
0: to portage them over <laughs> <a>
1: <laughs> kilometer.
0: Yeah. It doesn't yeah. matter, I guess, if it's bigger, right? It's just a cool story no yep. matter
1: what. Yep. So I've had those for uh, for quite a while, and they kind of make cool decoration on oh, yeah. the job. Yeah. How old were so, you again? Um, by this on time, I was 16 years old. Okay. Uh, so I was out 42 days when I was 16. Wow. Um, and then for the three years after that, they hired me back as a guide, and that's where I started being a guide. Nice um but i was also
0: camper to counselor basically but camper to uh, counselor
1: more than that that i was camper to the guide for the 10 day and 28 day long trip so there was two day two trips for the whole summer Mm -hmm. and again i was doing all the navigation for those trips map and compass no gps back then
2: Yep.
1: um and uh 28 days. We started at the camp in Tamagami, Ontario, and we ended up in Thunder Bay. Oh, we ended up in Dead River, Ontario, on Lake Temiskaming, which Temiskaming separates Ontario from Quebec. It was 20 days out to the river, and it was eight days down the Des Moines River wow. in Quebec.
0: So you're like a, basically a recreation guide? That would be the equivalent of a but recreation diet. Yeah. Did we be able to? Were you able to hunt along the way at all, or was that not legal? Uh, it wasn't in season, again, middle yeah, of the summer. Sense. Makes sense. Um,
1: when we did go through the Indian towns on the long trips, the Native Americans could hunt and we bought moose from them. Wow. So that was really the first and only fresh meat we had the whole 42 days. <laughs> um, but uh, no, a lot of fishing, a lot of pike. Yep. Um, back even in that six year stint everything was wooden canvas canoes. Wow. You know, that's why there's four the little, one up front there. Yeah, yeah, out front in the shop here is a wooden canvas canoe. Yeah. like um,
0: birch like birch canoes?
1: No, it's instead of using the birch bark on the outside, it's canvas.
0: I gotcha. Um
1: birch bark went out the turn of the nineteenth century. Yeah. Just too much maintenance and all um
0: more expensive too to buy today. Yeah.
1: Old Town and then up there was chestnut canoes were the famous ones. Uh that started again turning the nineteenth century and went up into the sixties and seventies. Chestnut went out in the late seventies. Yep. Um which were you know, that the chestnut canoe was what settled northern yep. Canada.
0: So um, you basically spent all your teenage summers up there. In northern Canada. Well,
1: again... How many people can say that? Well, yeah. <laughs> again, we would end the camp, uh, I think it was, it's always on, I think, August 7th. And again, school didn't go back until the middle of September. Mm-hmm. So then I'd come back to New England, and then we'd come up here for a couple of weeks. Nice. Um, it's not too shabby. Not too shabby. <laughs> I mean, Dad was on the administrative side, so he had to work some of the summer. But at that point, Mom was the school nurse,
0: so she had the summer off. Yeah. So, How did you get into the place? Like, was it relatives had been there before, or was it just like a offer the, to your school or something? The camp? Yeah, or, the camp, yeah. The
1: camp, again, um, we knew of it through other teachers at the school. Gotcha. Because they used to run it. camp, camp actually date back, dates back to 1933, um, and it was founded by... Various school teachers out of New England. That's so cool, um, and uh, it's it obviously took last summer off, but it is happening this summer.
0: So did um, you have some teachers that were with you on the trip? Oh, uh, there
1: were always you know when you're on the camper side, there were always adults. Yep. But it was interesting that first year where they hired me back at seventeen mm. to be the guide. It was me and only one other adult. And then how many kids? about? Then we had eight kids with us. Wow. So we yeah. had a total of five canoes, two yeah. people per canoe. Um, and they that first year, I didn't lead on as to how old I was because <laughs> there were actually 18-year-olds in that section.
0: Nice. And I was 17. That's
1: awesome. And it was only towards, the, like, the last week on the river, they were like, no, no, you can't be, you know, only, you can't be a year younger. Finally, I had to produce my license to show them after, you know, five and a half weeks. Yeah, I am younger yeah. than you are.
0: <laughs> and I were sort of like, darn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's crazy. But uh, it was a great experience. You know, again, we never went camping
0: growing up, per se. Yeah. Um, did you do it when you went to WPI in the summers too, or was it,
1: I did it my freshman year at WPI that after, between freshman and sophomore and between senior year in high school and freshman, I was guiding up there. Nice. Then I took it off and I was, I guess, overly ambitious or stupid. I don't know what you want to call it, but I added a second major at WPI and I graduated WPI with two engineering degrees, two full bachelors of engineering. What What were they? Mechanical engineering yeah. yep. and
0: manufacturing engineering. Oh, I didn't even know that existed. Yep. So
1: that's awesome. pretty much anything I can design, I can build. Yep. And that's kind of how I tell myself. I always have.
0: Um, Those are great skills to have. You can so, do so many things, like what you're doing now, right? Yeah. That yeah, film. it, it
1: leads nicely, you know, this... HMH and I guess we'll get a little further into it yeah. uh, along here, but uh, you know it's great, you know, combining your passion of the outdoors of fishing yeah. with you know engineering that I
0: went to school for and things like that. So, well, you're doing something you love to do, and yeah. and it's associated with something that you love doing in your free time, you know. Huh? So it's pretty cool. That's pretty neat that you know I can oh well. Got to go test this. Got to go fish this. Right. Got to do whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the same, it's the same thing I say to my wife. While God. I'm like, ah, I got to go scout for a couple of days. Yep. Yeah. Scout with the air quotes there. We've all, we've all been there. So um, so after college, what were... After
1: college, I was hired by General Dynamics and was designing components inside nuclear submarines down in Connecticut. Wow. And... Uh, I was on the design team that designed the Virginia class nuclear reactor side. Um, I was also doing quality control of the CAD data that was used to design the submarine. Wow. And I did that for two years. Yeah. And by then, what was I? 20 years old, 22 years old. You know, I would spend my whole days in meetings and presenting designs to the U.S. Navy and sitting in front of a computer screen or auditing computer data. Yep. Which was hell for somebody who'd been outside and traveled the North Woods. Yeah,
0: that's so hard. It's so hard to have people who love to be outdoors and just have these inside jobs. I mean, I have like a, I have a friend who like works at Unum. He sits in a cube all the time, but he's like one of the biggest outdoors people I know. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like so. In that time frame, my wife and I got married,
1: Yeah. and we decided, you know, hey, we didn't want to live in southern southern Connecticut. <clears throat> um, that also was a time that General Dynamics had gone from something in the neighborhood of, you know, 100,000 employees building submarines during the Cold War and contracts after that down to like 25,000 employees. Yeah. So it was a really depressed area just south of where the casinos were. The casinos were just beginning to bring people to the area. So we decided, you know, we didn't want to live down here. So Heather applied for some jobs in Portland, Mm -hmm. got one, and I walked away from General Dynamics Electric Boat with no job. Wow. We moved up here. Um, I ended up getting a job with a company by the name of Schaumbraud Racing Shells. Now, Schombrod made the 52-foot-long rowing shells that were rowed in the Olympics, that college and universities row and things like that. Those are 52 feet long? Yep. Some The eight-man shells are 52 feet long oh, I guess and 28 yep. inches wide. Wow. And That's insane. We, we built them such like that two they trucks. weighed under 280 pounds. Wow. And carry eight men, yep. plus a coxswain, the guy who steers in the back, yep. and I had to weigh under two hundred eighty pounds. And where were they doing it out of? About a mile and a half south of us here, Route really? One in Bedford. Wow. Um, and uh, so I worked for Sean Broad for about two or three years right after we moved up here, um, with the auspices that eventually I'd run his company and maybe even buy his company. Yep. Well, I worked with another guy, actually. He went to Harvard, was a coxswain for Harvard. He had some friends and threw some money together to start their own company, Building Racing Shells. And uh, I went down and talked with them and essentially interviewed with them to be their engineer. And uh, the... Previous owner of Shrombraud right here caught wind of that interview and fired me the next morning. There you go. <laughs> well, let's just say the main Department of Labor got involved. You can't fire somebody for trying to improve themselves and taking an interview. Right.
0: So, so I
1: Tuesday ended up you're with him. Tuesday the
0: office? Uh, what's that? <laughs> Tuesday morning you're back in the office?
1: No, he offered me <laughs> my job back after all the court hearings and all that stuff. And yeah. it wasn't. But he ended that up with that's a, not
0: awkward or anything.
1: Yeah, that was awkward, and uh, <laughs> he ended up a giving me a fairly large check for mm-hmm. back wages, and b asking me to sign a non compete agreement, and I said no, thank you. So I walked away from my second job, with no other job, um, and ultimately, about three years later, I had everything set up to buy his company from him, and. Had financing set up. Called him up Friday afternoon. This was I was down back down in Connecticut at this point. Uh, called him up Friday afternoon. We're all set for closing Monday morning. And he's like, No, uh, actually, I realized that you know if I sell you the company, I I won't have any place to go to, and I'll have to be at home with my wife. So I'm not selling you the company. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what?
1: So. <laughs> That kind of blew up in my face. But anyway, um, so, uh, you know, from there, I designed molds that made essentially egg cartons, you Mm. know, that recycled paper that egg cartons are made out of. Yeah. But we were making that packaging for uh, 3M. We were making it for life-touch blood monitors. Again, it was a fairly rugged packaging, and this was up in Scarborough. Yep. Um, and while I was there, I got a call from a family friend down in Connecticut. He'd bought a company and was in over his head and needed an engineer and named him a price. He'll move me back and the family back down to Connecticut. So what I thought was going to be a couple of year commitment get him going turned into I think it was nine and a half years back down in Connecticut Mm. and uh, so that I ended up owning a chunk of that company
0: yep Um,
1: and that's really where I started playing with building fly fishing equipment Um, I'd always as a kid my parents were collectors antique collectors and all so I would go into the corners of the barn and look for bamboo fly rods and look for old fishing equipment, um, one of which I'll need to get out for you because I have a whole string of Rangeley licenses. Oh, that's cool. Date, date back to the 40s and 50s and 60s. That's great. And and that's all from your family? No, this was all stuff we picked up. Right. Nice. You know, just picked up in antique stores yeah, and things okay. like that. Yeah, Um but like specific
0: uh, specific Rangely licenses,
1: yeah. It was just somebody kept going to Rangeley, yeah. And back then, a license for them was a pin, and so you put it on your coat, your yep. vest, whatever. And uh, so this obviously was somebody who'd gone to Rangeley many years, decades in a row, and just thrown them all in a drawer. And then wow. I bought this box that had a whole
0: bunch of Rangely licenses. That's so cool. So that's so cool. It's funny because you think about that stuff now when you like clean things out or you're gonna throw stuff away, and you don't know in like 60 years from now. Like, I mean, those things can be like in a museum, yeah, like it be in the range of the museum. Yeah, I was gonna where? say, yeah, I'll you take
1: mean, them up to a Quaset, you go, you know, the
0: collection, yeah, yeah perfect. Um, where you well, first of all, I was gonna say, you know, you, you got fired, you quit a couple of jobs, and you seem like very confident in your skills. Do you think? You gained a lot of confidence from your time as a teenager doing those things. Out there. Oh, oh, by all means. Yeah. By all means. All cool. um, oh, that translates on.
1: Huh? Yeah. When the first couple of years as I went back as a guide, I would also kind of proctor the bus because the camp would run a bus from Boston all the way up 300 miles north of Toronto. Mm-hmm. And we'd stop along the Mass Pike and pick up kids along the way And I remember distinctly meeting a father who was kind of dropping off this kid to go up to northern Canada. And, you know, well, you know, he was checking. There is a bathroom on board the bus. Yeah, yeah, he'll he'll be fine. Yeah, and we stop (laughs) periodically at rest stops, and he can go (laughs) in there and all that stuff. Yeah. And so he was being, you know, what we probably call a helicopter parent these days, you know. And then he met us on the beach six weeks later, and within minutes was like, oh, my God, I have a totally different kid. He is so self-reliant. He is so self-confident. You know, he's in great shape from traveling around. Um, this has been the world. And a lot of kids who take this experience do this experience. That's the same thing that happens. Sure. Um you know, you don't fight with nature, you commune with nature, you learn how to deal, you know, all right, it's pouring rain, what am I going to do? Yep. You don't fight it, you yep. can't fight it.
0: Right. Um, it's like you don't have any other choices, you know, yeah. you just have to get through things and you have to figure out the best way. And
1: Figure out the best way, figure out how to
0: make yourself comfortable. Yep. Totally away from civilization. I just think most people in their 20s now, like, they get their first job or whatever and some of them think all right this is it like this is what i'm doing for 40 years and it takes a lot of confidence though to be like yeah i'm gonna go do something else or i'm gonna go do that like it's not an easy move for a lot of people because there's comfort you know having a job and
1: yeah i mean it's dealing with the situation you're presented with yeah yeah um somebody who has been in nature you know somebody nate traveling the allagash and things like that you know you know you've you got to deal with stuff on a minute by minute, hour by hour basis. Yep. Um, and make it the best you can for
0: what you're given. So when you were living up here in your twenties, were you were you fly fishing at all during that time, or are you? I no really. I mean, much of my
1: outdoor activities kind of took a hiatus um, when my boys were young. Mm-hmm. Um, when the kids were young, it kind of. And that's also when I was in pretty intense engineering positions. Yeah. Things like
0: that. Tell that always works. You get all your busyness going on at once, and yeah, it's hard to tie things like that. That I mean, that's what I'm going through right now with a four and six year old. It's hard to manage everything, you know. some Stuff outdoor stuff often takes a backseat.
1: Yeah, but I think you'll also find that you know once those four and six become eight and ten, it flips. Oh yeah. Because then they want to go out and do it with you.
0: Yeah, they already do. I'm slogging them along sometimes, but it's just like you can't. You have to have really low expectations.
1: Well, yeah. And there, yeah, you're spending all your time tying on new flies or untangling tippets or, you know, you're not fishing. Right. Distributing
0: Um, snacks mostly.
1: Yeah, that's true. At that age, yeah, it's snack time. Going from snack time to snack time. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But, uh, you know, it, it does... Having been there, it does change, you know, and you're setting the right groundwork. Yeah, You're setting
0: the right foundation. I like to think so, and I I feel like, because I, like you, I didn't really grow up, I mean, you said you were 10 when you started fishing. I didn't fly fish until I was 18, so for me, it was, and again, Nate's the outlier here. Like, (laughs) he's like, been doing it forever, and it's a... well, it's by cool. Ten, though, by yeah.
1: ten, he probably had his guide's license. That's downstairs. what I mean.
0: Nope.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you probably could have though. I was doing canoe trips. That's what I mean. You're probably leading the with, way. Yeah. Yeah,
0: you had these people who are inexperienced, and you were you're leading the way with them, and um, that's great. So, and you're a main guide. Also, are you yeah. a master main guide? No, I'm just a main
1: guide. Okay. Um,
0: main fishing guide. Yep.
1: And uh, you know, got that actually on the wall over there. Um, but it was only like two years ago, three years ago. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought you'd been doing it for a while. Well, again, I'd been guiding up in Canada since yeah, I was right. 16, 17. Right. Yeah. Um, but no, formally taking the plunge, you know, at 17, I looked at it. I'd gotten the information on being a main guide, but we moved away. Right. And uh, then we were here... Heather and I had moved back up, but we were only up here for five or six years. Both boys were born in Portland. Um, That was kind of in the hiatus when I wasn't doing much fishing. Yeah. There was a stretch, you know, there was a guy when I was doing the egg carton type stuff. He and I went up and did fish the rapid. Yeah. Um, Did a couple of trips with a couple of, you know, colleagues and things like that, but I really wasn't into you know, fishing I would fish off the beach, sure. then, you know, three hundred feet from but it. But you're busy, like I mean your career that. your career was blind. your career, your weekends are with kids. You yep. know, and at that point I mean when we moved back to Connecticut, Alex was two so Jackson was four. So they're still pretty young. yeah Um so yeah, it's family time on the weekends, not fishing time. So So you were so grew up the kids
0: grew up in Connecticut?
1: Yeah, pretty much. I grew up in Connecticut. Yep. Um, we moved back nine years ago. Um, okay. I was able, the cottage at Kennebunkport was jointly owned by me and my cousin. And she lived out in Columbus, Ohio. Would come out maybe for two, ye- two weeks every two years or something like that. Um, she also was 12 years my younger. Mm. So it was almost a generation skip there. Um, so when she proposed it, um, she wanted to kind of cash out of the cottage. We were in an opportunity, lucky enough opportunity that I could buy her out. Nice. Um, so we bought, I bought her out, and the cottage was truly a cottage. I mean, it wasn't winterized, um, and, you know, I had kind of had work done on it in 1962 when my gran- grandmother... <laughs> Pine panelled everything, yep. <laughs> ceilings, walls, everything. Is <laughs> she was paint un- or just
0: leaving untreated? Un-
1: you know, just rustic pine yep. paneling. Yep. So after two weeks there, you begin seeing spots from all the knots in the pine paneling. <laughs> oh, yeah,
0: darkens up too over yep. time. In
1: the- so we uh, we you know I carefully saved some of the pine paneling, but we pretty much gutted the house mm-hmm. again. It was built in eighteen ninety two cottage. Uh, Gutted the house, put an addition, put modern heat into it, all of which I designed the addition, the heating system, everything. Um, And renovated it and moved in as our year-round house, you know, a year later. Yep. How Um, old is your
0: youngest at that point?
1: Let's see. I mean, Abby is... Abby will be 18 in two weeks so she was what nine
0: yeah
1: when we moved up nice Um, so uh, yeah so they've at least Abby you know her teenage years have been right on the coast of Maine
0: that's pretty sweet yeah
1: but she's the only one who wasn't born in Maine both boys were born
0: that's funny so (laughs) but she spent the most time there as a kid (laughs) but uh, that's cool and you have two, you have two old, two old, how old were your boys when they moved here? Um, well, they would been, you said she was like
1: nine. She was nine. So they were, uh, 14, 16, yep. so something of that nature. Yep.
0: Um, yeah, that's pretty close. So how how old were you when you started really like exploring Maine? Because you know you and I have had some conversations, and you go to some pretty cool places
1: well, around the state. I do have the opportunity I can go to some pretty cool places, but um, uh, exploring Maine per se was really heavy duty. Pursuing Maine was two thousand and nine and after. Gotcha. Um, again, when I owned the machine shop down in Connecticut was when I started making fly reels and, um, that was distinctly head to Maine, head to, uh, (laughs) Cannebago to test reels. Test
0: the reel. Uh, Yeah. Got it.
1: Um, you don't want to to do that
0: down on those stockers. Yeah. I
1: mean, stockies just don't cut it. Um, I've got a picture of Abby at age five in one of John Blunt's Rangeley boats, with a uh, garrison taper bamboo fly rod and a fly reel that I'd made catching 8-inch brook trout on Kennebago. That's cool. And I posted that on my early website, and everybody cringed because they're like, what are you doing with a 4-year-old and a bamboo fly rod? And I'm like, ah, (laughs) I can make more. Don't worry. (laughs)
0: That's awesome. So... So you were making reels when you were living you were living down in Connecticut, just yep. as like a little side a little side game. you know uh, I touched
1: upon it you know I had bamboo rods at the bottom of that case is full of bamboo. there's one right here by me um, yep. I see but uh, uh bamboo fly rods and I kind of was like well you know I need be nice to have a decent period reel to go with it and I started looking around and I'm like well geez, an Edward Von Hoff reel would be really nice. You know, those are those are like four or five hundred dollars. I can never afford one. Right. So I built one. Nice. The first one I built didn't necessarily work. The drag system didn't work. So I started putting some feelers out and talking to some other antique fly rod people and found a guy who was willing to bring one up and let me take it apart. So I dismantled this reel on my desk. And showed him what I did and compared notes and what was found inside and all that stuff. And he's like, this is really cool. Will you make them for me? Nice. Well, that turned out to be not a very good business relationship because he was, he essentially wanted me to make fakes. Oh, I see. Mark them as fakes. Knockoffs of them. Because there's only a limited supply of ever von Hof reels at all. I ended up making a dozen reels for Bass Pro Shops back when they were separate from Cabela's because Bass Pro Shops couldn't get enough original ebonite and nickel silver reels to put on their display if you've been around Bass Pro. Yeah. They've got all yeah. type of antique equipment and all. <clears throat> well, I made these dozen reels for That's them. That's cool. Um, because they couldn't buy, but those were not marked Edward Von Hoff. Those were marked John Larabee and Company. Right. Right. And uh, I refused to make for this other guy fakes. Yep. Um, just out of principle. I, yeah. But um, in that whole situation of talking to people and learning about them, I was able to hook up with Hoagie Carmichael, um, son of the singer Hoagie Carmichael, and ended up buying his whole collection of antique real parts and pieces. So the antique real people still contact me for a screw here or, um, you know, a real face, a foot, whatever. Yep. Um, And uh, actually, Huggy was here about three weeks ago picking up some parts and pieces. That's awesome.
0: So isn't isn't there, uh, uh, not to interrupt you, but I, like, for me... I just fish whatever reel I can kind of afford, and you know, I don't need anything too crazy for trout and salmon, but, like, I've been down to, like, Elder's Rose before, and people come in with these, you know, wicked old reels, whatever, and they're just, they treat it like it's a piece of gold, you know, like, you want to see it, but they don't let me touch it, you know, and in my mind, I'm like, whatever, it's a reel, but to them, it's like, it's a big thing like, Fluger, is that a big...
1: Pfl- is a very popular reel. Yeah. Um, You know...
0: I'm, excuse a- my ignorance on it, too, but... It was. Uh, I mean, what are you fishing for with this? I'm uh, holding. This looks like a giant bait casting reel to me. Well, <laughs> if, I, if I had to think, <laughs> what it was. that
1: actually is an original Edward Womhoff. Wow. Turn of the 19th century salmon reel. Made Makes in sense. New York. Yep. Um. And that one is, if you turn it around, I think that's the one. And what I did was I went over and off my desk and grab one that's here for repair
0: that in May 2002
1: yeah so that's patented in uh 1902 wow. yeah that's not 2002 that's <laughs> 1902 <laughs> wow and uh that one's got a very unique drag system and uh yeah, be careful with it. You're I'm not touching it. <laughs> I'm looking here. I see some yeah. screws coming Yeah, hollow. I took I took some screws out uh, yeah. to see the inside of You spin it. this. Yeah, that's actually the drag selector. Gotcha. Um, and that would have been fished on, you know, a 14-foot two-handed bamboo
0: salmon rod. That's crazy. Yep. Yeah. Like nobody does that anymore. Actually, I had a couple of... (laughs) I'll take it back.
1: (laughs) I had a couple of crazy customers, and I should be careful about calling them crazy customers, but I had a couple of customers who had me make new feet for antique reels because the foot of that reel is bigger than a modern Uh, foot.
0: Can't fit in there. So
1: it can't fit. But I had one guy who I restored a reel for who went... To the Grand Cascapedia, up in Quebec mm-hmm. in the Gaspé and fished for Atlantic salmon and caught Atlantic salmon on a turn of the 19th century Vomhoff reel and a turn of the 19th century bamboo fly rod. Wow.
0: You can so, just die happy then.
1: So this guy <laughs> was fishing with probably, you know, going in $10,000 worth of equipment. Wow.
0: Just to cast... Now, did he have, like, new Rio line on it, though, or is he using... I, mean, of- I <laughs> didn't know,
1: did he fully. go with silk line?
0: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Doing um, it for real there. Yep. Wow, this is cool. I see this little thing. here. Says oil. You got to oil it? Yep. Yep. It's crazy. Yep. No one thinks to do that, like, with their flyer. No,
1: everybody around. wants it quick and dirty, and you're lucky enough to get people to rinse the salt out of their it's salt. So he- it's just
0: so heavy, too, though.
1: Yeah, but think about it. It's got to balance a 14-foot rod.
0: It's true so that's
1: true. yeah overall the rod and the reel together would weigh 15
0: pounds <laughs> but they balance pretty well so how long so so how long did you make reels for I made reels for it was well
1: it was probably five or six years
0: yeah
1: um, but I mean I still I still have a list of probably 30 people who want me to build reels that's great um, and I actually have some, uh, you know, local bamboo fly rod guys who would love to be able to offer a B reel to
0: go with their rod. That's cool. Wow. So, um... You gotta do it, So you have, I mean, not that you know have a legacy here with HMA, but <laughs> you gotta fly reel legacy, too.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, um... I always jokingly say, you know, oh, I need a little Christmas money, and it used to be. If I need a little Christmas money or something like that, I'd build a reel or two. <laughs> That's great. And I've actually, I think it was probably about three or four years ago, went down to Edison, New Jersey with two reels. And uh, some of the collectors were just floored. Absolutely floored. Um, and... It kind of having Hoagie up here a couple of weeks ago tempted me. I'm like, eh, maybe I should build a couple of reels and take to Edison. Why not?
0: And say, well, the
1: problem s- is I'm too busy at HMH.
0: True. But, but I mean, so, like, in, in, if not even for money, you might just meet some people and learn some cool stuff or have a oh, cool yeah. story for someone to share or whatever. Yep. Somebody to compare Because yep. you're going to have at those shows, you're going to have people that are Nuts above that I mean, the oh, antique yeah. fly fishing. and
1: that's what it was. It was I remember a gentleman by the name of um, uh, Graham? It wasn't Graham King because Graham King was f- boats, but um, he does Gaelic supreme fish And Graham saw this reel and. He's like, can I take and show this to a couple of my friends? Well, I didn't see that reel for about five and a half hours. And I'm like, well, at least I know where Graham's booth is. I'll get my reel back. (laughs) But that's exactly what he did, was he went around and was showing it to some of his friends. Um, Gaelic Supreme uh, is the last, probably, collection of original English handmade Fish hooks. Wow. Um, where they're hand bent and everything. Um, and ultimately, I don't know if that was the Sprite line or the Partridge line, but certainly Partridge Fish Hooks bought all that equipment mm. and everything. And Is Mark Partridge Han- out of the US? No. Par- they're out of uh, Wincanton, England. Gotcha. Um, and Actually, I went over in 2019 to the British Fly Fishing show with Partridge and went to the show with them. Cool. Um, got to see their facility and everything.
0: Yeah. So. And they bought
1: this... This. Uh, they bought all this equipment. coming from the other company. Yeah. What was um, the other company again? Um, well, Gaelic Supreme Gaelic is Supreme. what's right. selling the product and all. Gotcha. Um, but it's... Uh, yeah, and as you said, I get to go bunch of cool places, go to yeah. England for shows, uh, you know, fish the Tweed River in Scotland, nice. things like that. So it's kind of, it's kind of fishing nice. for Atlantic's there? Uh, we were actually just for brown trout. Nice. Um, unlike here in the States, fishing in England is all about riparian rights and yep. who owns the water and the land around it. Um... So to fish for Atlantic salmon can be multi-thousands of pounds per day. Yep. Well, HMH is not that affluent that I
0: could. Sure. afford. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that. I had a I had a client a few years back whose son was going to school over in New Hampshire. And he was playing soccer. He was from England. And uh, his name was Simon. And he was telling me about like there are trout rivers there how you basically have to be part of a club and you pay a membership fee and based on like I think it was based on seniority, you could fish certain parts of the river like you couldn't just go wherever you wanted to Yep. I remember a lot from what he said because I just remember thinking wow that's insane compared to I mean here you just go compared to here right and uh but he was saying like they would prune the river like all the trees or they'd plant them specifically to like I mean, just so cool to me that they're managing for habitat. Whereas I think like in the state here, they don't take our money and manage habitat with it. they just stock fish and well, I mean they do other things, but but like to me that's really cool that they do something like that. However, that must suck though to pay money and be like, I can't even fish right over there and that's that's Joe's spot. I'll get there in a few years and eat croaks. Yep. Yep.
1: I mean it
0: it is. It's and it's uh, It's crazy, right? If you think about yeah. it.
1: Yeah. Even to the point of, you know, lake fishing there and all is kind of clubs. Mm. And clubs pay for the stocking of the. But certainly where we were fishing in the Tweed was, it's not, it's all native fish nice. in the river. Nice. Um, so it was all native brown trout, nothing huge.
0: But yeah. again, it, you know, checkbox. Well, they got been there, done that. <laughs> they got to have fishing opportunities for the peons of the world too. You know, you can't. Not everybody can afford to be in these. Well, m- certainly memberships over there. Yeah,
1: trout and salmon are definitely membership something done. You know, fairly well to do for yep. trout and salmon. Yeah. Um, over there is also there's a lot of what they refer to as coarse fishing. Yep. Um, and that's the carp, that's the pike, that's the non-trout and salmon. Yeah. And uh, then saltwater's pretty big, not necessarily for fly fishing, but just general fishing. Um, but the, uh, the course fishing is what is done by, you know, majority. It's also what uh, the majority of the business is. Yeah. You Know because there are a lot more people who've course fished than trout and salmon fish over there. Yeah.
0: And go just going back to your story nine years ago, you moved here Yeah. eight, nine years ago. Yep. Um, did you get right here? Like, what were you doing for work when you got back here?
1: Um, I for two years after we moved back, I would commute back to Connecticut once a day, di- uh, once a week.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and I was the engineer designing firefighting equipment. And I would go down every Thursday morning, leaving at 5 a.m. in the morning, go down, get there by 8.30, have meetings with production, with other engineers, whatever, uh, owners of the company, kind of present what I've designed over the week, get new assignments, and then drive back Thursday night. Yeah. Um, and do my work over the week, and then, so I would commute down and back every Thursday. Yeah. Um, I did that for two years. In the meantime, you know, it kind of introduced the HMH scenario. Um, Actually, back when I was building reels and all, um, how I was introduced to HMH was I took a class at L.L. Bean. Because, well, I was making these large salmon reels for the bamboo guys. And, well, you know, I got to go fish for Atlantic real Atlantic salmon to test my reel. For sure. So, well, if you're <laughs> going to fish for real Atlantic salmon, you got to fish with a two-handed rod. So I took Bean's class on two-handed casting, spay casting. Sure. Um, with a gentleman by the name of Craig Euchre yep. there. Craig was the head casting instructor. And uh, off I went later that, I guess that was in spring. Later that summer, I went up to the Miramichi twice to fish. Um, and I think that was actually the year I went up twice and didn't catch a single fish. That's pretty typical of it. So, right? <laughs> um, then I came back to Maine when Beans was having their fly fishing expo. I think it was in. Mid March or something Late like March, that yeah, that they had it. Or, yeah, yeah. And Craig was there, and uh, so he and I were chatting, and um, he's like, "Well, let me introduce you to John Albright, who was the previous owner of H. M. H. And uh, John and I kept up a correspondence, and John and I worked together, not ex- that exact vice, but a similar vice, um, on a new prototype." Vice over the next year or so, and it kept kind of well. You know, I'm about ready to retire. Um, you know, we you should buy H and that went back and forth. I think it was for eight or nine years of just talking, doing a little bit of work, designing designing a new chassis for them, things like that. Yeah. Um, and then ultimately, in two thousand and fifteen, we reached agreement after this nine years of courting. I call it. Sure. Um, <laughs> we reached an agreement, <laughs> and uh, I bought the majority share of H M H Vice. Cool. And they was out in New Hampshire, correct? Um, John Albright lives in Freeport. Okay. Um, but. The New Hampshire connection is HMH was founded in New Boston, New Hampshire. That's right. Back in 1975. Okay. Um, the history there was a gentleman by the name of Bill Hunter couldn't really find a good vice for tying Atlantic salmon flies. That's what he was getting into. Um, 75, you know, there was the Universal, there was the Atlas vice, but, or, um, but that's about it. Yeah. And uh, so he worked with a bunch of people um, and came up with the original HMH Vice design. And that, I mean, that Vice, I mean, Dave Whitlock had serial number one of the original uh, HMH Vice. I think it was Lefty Cray had serial number two or three. Wow. Wow. Um, And actually, we still have that list. And the original book of who bought the first HMH vices with serial numbers and all that stuff, um, Bill Hunter wanted to sell all this information to HMH. And I said, HMH doesn't need that. The American Museum of Fly Fishing in Manchester needs all this. So I kind of brokered a deal between Hunter and the American Museum of Fly Fishing. Cool such that all the original drawings, all the original prototype parts and pieces, and the original book of registry of these vices and all is now at the American Museum of Fly Fishing. That's fantastic. So um, what started out as HMH for tying Atlantic salmon flies turned into Hunter's Fly Shop, which was a fairly renowned fly shop in the 70s and into the early 80s um where was this this was in new boston new hampshire so pretty much due west of manchester new hampshire um what are
0: people fishing for out there
1: again i mean there's the little river that runs right through there trout fishing and all that stuff yeah but i mean in its heyday hunters would have you know bogged in fly reels for the atlantic salmon guys again uh, Stan Bogdan was in uh, Nashua, so he wasn't too far away. Mm. Um, so uh, so Bill founded the company and you know, sold the Hunter Vice, ultimately sold the HMH Vices to a company, API, down in New Jersey. And that, I think, was in 83,
0: 84, early 80s. What's HMH stand for? HMH stands for Hunter's Madhouse. Okay. <laughs> I figured the Hunter was in there somewhere, but. Uh
1: the story goes, and I got this directly from Bill Hunter when he was at our other shop in uh downtown Biddeford, Neil Mill. Was you know, he was gonna apply for a patent on the original vice. And early vices have uh HMH patent applied for on the cam lever. Um but his patent attorney was like, well, you got to call it something. you got to put a logo on it. you got to put an identifier on it, whatever. And, you know, he hired some, I think it was German or Austrian engraver to engrave the first chassis. He's like, just put something on it. Put some identifying thing on it and all that stuff. And the Austrian the engraver comes back and goes, here you go. I called it HMH, and at that time, the hunters didn't have a full shop, but they had a big farmhouse on a hill, and people would come to the house to buy flies and all, and uh, there were kids running around. There were dogs going back and forth. (laughs) People were coming in to buy flies. The engraver named it? So the engraver, and Bill unwraps it, goes, what's HMH? It's this place, Hunter's Madhouse. (laughs) <laughs> and that's how HMH That's awesome. According to
0: Bill, that's yeah. how HMH came to be. That's pretty cool. <laughs> so makes I mean if that's the story, I mean why would he make that up? That well, pretty, yeah, I mean it great. came
1: right right from a horse's mouth. So That's awesome. How many times has
0: it been sold over the years?
1: Um Bill sold it to API. API was bought by uh again John Albright and some friends and then I bought it from John Albright and his friends.
0: So he owned it for a while. Yeah,
1: he owned it from I think it was 82 until
0: 2015 wow. when I bought it. Wow. Now, was, was when he bought it there was just one vice they were making? Um, I think there was just the Spartan and the Standard. Oh, okay. So you've kept the names originally? Oh, yeah. So. Sweet. Oh, yeah. That's cool.
1: Um, the might have had the premium limited edition, which is essentially that original serial numbered vice that was the Dave Whitlock, Lefty Craig yeah. series. Um, but no, that was really it. Um, it did have a couple of different jaws to them. Yep. But certainly from there is where we added the spinner vice, which does the tube flies. Um, and... Even the API era, we did have the two fly tools. Um, we still have the original API drawings and all over in the
0: files. So they were tying two flies so, even back then. Oh yeah,
1: now two flies actually date back to I think the '50s in England.
0: Yeah, can you um, can you also just for people who don't know, including myself really, what are two flies like? What are they used for? And what's well, I
1: mean, two flies can actually be used for pretty much any fishing situation but instead of tying on the shank of a hook, Mm -hmm. you're tying on a hollow tube. And sometimes you can dress the hook, sometimes it's just a bare hook, and you run the tippet of your fly line through the tube, which is all dressed to look most of the time like a bait fish streamer pattern. Um... You run your tippet through the tube and you tie on your bear hook or a lightly dressed hook. Mm -hmm. And what it does is especially, you know, um, for fighting steelhead, for fighting the Atlantic salmon, um, you're fighting the fish on a short shanked hook. The short shank is important because it's less of a lever in the mouth of the fish to work a hole bigger and the hook to come out.
0: So you're using the tube basically to make the fly long, bigger. So just without a huge shank hook is what you're.
1: Without a long shanked lever in the mouth of the fish
0: that will work loose. Is the tippet tied like near the hook bend, or is it on the other side of the fly? It's tied on the other
1: side of the fly, directly to the eye of the hook. Oh,
0: okay. I get you.
1: Um, so, it also has the advantage of, you know, when you do hook up, the tube tends to f- slide up your tippet to your knot between mm-hmm. your leader and
0: your tippet, so it protects the fly, yep. especially something fairly heavily dressed. Yeah, you, so, you, Nate showed me that like two years or a year ago or whatever, because yep. I hadn't seen them before, and um, it's pretty cool. It's very foreign to me and what I do. I'm, Used to just fishing natural stuff. Well, yeah. <laughs> so simple, man, compared to some of the stuff. It's, it amazes me with social media, just all the crazy stuff that people are doing with flies now. And, you know, and not even since COVID. I mean, there's just been this burst of can these commercial fly tires come out? And they're like, Nate, and I mean, Nate ties a new fly every morning. You know well, yeah. You? He posts like, a new
1: fly every morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: How's that going for you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Wake up in the morning, have your coffee and you're like, Alright, what am I gonna do today? <laughs> when do you think about it? At night?
3: Usually on the spot. Oh, on the spot, yeah.
0: yeah. Just, just grab a bunch of stuff and start throwing it together. Pawing
3: through materials and yeah.
0: Figure out a color scheme I like and It's crazy. It's a crazy talent you have to be able to do It's very creative. I feel like if I did that, mine wouldn't look nice. They'd just be, be like, Alright, let's throw some squirrel in with some elk air and <laughs> we'll call it something and. Uh, ugly flies
3: catch fish too yep
0: they do there's proof in that because my flies catch fish <laughs> 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 your flies really catch fish though some of yours Man, we Nate tied up some bass flies for me last year and well he took had, them when we guided oh that's right yep. I forgot about that yep. just a game just game not the fly the game changer but yep. the flies that he tied were just game changers for like presentation like his poppers are amazing because you don't even you don't even have to have you can have a ton of slack in the line you strip it and that thing still makes a giant pop. Oh yeah, which is what you're looking for, and it's so hard sometimes with clients to just make sure their rod tips in the water and they have all that line all that that uh all that loose fly line they out and they just you know and, and his fly though it's just it moves so much water. He's awesome. got a lot of practice. Yeah, he does. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty sweet. So, um, yeah, I'll take a time out. A little bathroom break here. Everybody. You got it. We'll be back. <laughs> While we take a short break, I thought I'd remind you of some of the folks we've had on the podcast in the past and offer up some suggestions for the holiday season ahead if you're looking for gifts for the fly fishing angler in your life. Greg Labani, Nate White, and Megan Hess can meet all of your custom-tied fly needs. And Greg is offering some really affordable, high quality gear like tippet, leaders, and fly line at incredible prices with, like I said, great quality. So uh, check out Nate at Northwoods Fly Company, Megan at Beadhead Fly Fishing, and Greg at Maine Fly Guys. Every year around the holiday season, I rack my brain trying to figure out that perfect gift for my dad or for my in laws. And over the past few years, my wife and I have been trying to buy them experiences rather than tangible gifts. Booking a day on the water with a main fly fishing guide or a couple of nights at a fly fishing lodge are really great gifts that give you a lasting memory, and they also help you improve as an angler. Who needs another sweater, anyways? All right. So, uh, some of our featured guides in the past year have been John Peterson of Peterson's Guide Service, who specializes in everything from fly fishing in Green Lake Stream to fishing out of his boat for stripers to getting on the ice for some lake trout jigging, if you're into that type of thing. Uh, Megan Hess and Nate White, while they both tie custom flies, they also run guide services in the spring, summer, and fall. And uh, James Brown is another guide that we've had on, who could just be the best fly fishing striper guide in the state if if you ask around. So um, the wealth of knowledge you'll gain from spending a day on the water with any of these guys is worth every single penny that you'll spend. And as far as Maine fishing lodges, you really can't beat the fishing and the accommodations you receive if you stay at Grant's Kennebago Camps in Rangeley. Monster brook trout and landlocked salmon, they're not uncommon when you fish behind the gates up there. And the magic of the Kennebago region is also something that you have to experience. Please keep all these local fly fishing businesses from Maine in mind throughout the holiday season. They greatly appreciate your business. All right, so after a little bathroom break, there we're back, and uh, and so we were talking about some of Nate's flies, which is always something we can we go on and on about because they're pretty sweet and they work pretty well. Just just okay, I guess. <laughs> just okay. Um, but uh, we were talking about we were talking about you'd moved back here and that you know you had when did you when did you move back into the shop. Were you doing the fire equipment here in the shop before you started doing the bike stuff? There was one year where I was doing both
1: the fire equipment consulting and I bought HMH. Gotcha. And at that time, HMH was up in the Fort Andros Mill in Brunswick. Mm. So complicating that even more was a 62-mile commute from Kittybunk Port to Brunswick. Gotcha. Um, and I was up there every day, but the Thursdays that I was down to Connecticut.
0: And was it just, were you the only employee at reached me at that time?
1: No, at that point there was essentially an office manager and that was the overlap year with John Albright, the previous owner. Gotcha. So there was three of us. Plus I think Craig Euchre was still involved, you know, a couple of days a month, um, Craig's we still hold Craig with the title of sales manager. There you go. Um, and uh, I think eventually we'll get Craig back as sales manager. I hope. Um, he's still at Beans. He's still at Beans. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, I think you know, desperately wants to come back, but
0: Beans is treating him nicely. Sure. So. yeah, they're doing pretty well. Yep. Um, right. so, so when when you had it for a year with John Albright, were you? Just basically learning from him, kind of yeah. how how yeah. he run the operation, and um, how many vices was he making at that time? I mean, different, different. Oh, versions. different models yeah. and
1: all. Um, certainly, you know, we had the the Spartan, the standard. We had one tube spinner vice. Um, we had the SX. Then we had a crossover, which is the Spartan with a tube fly converter to it, and that's about it.
0: Okay. And is so. a standard, is a
1: standard the original vice? In all intents and purposes, it is. It's had a couple of slight tweaks to it. Sure. I'll um, modernize it a little. But it's still pretty much the same size. Yeah. And same size cam lever and knobs and all than what Bill Hunter finalized probably. It was finalized probably in the you know seventy seven seventy eight range was the so. standard, and certainly if you still have a seventies early eighties era HMH standard vice, the jaws fit it, wow. the knobs fit it, wow. the cam levers fit it. Good for you. Um, so you know the collet is slightly different and the chassis is slightly different, but other yeah. than that, things fit.
0: So you, you're not you're not one for taking the Apple approach where you just change something every new version that comes out and make people have to get all the new stuff for it.
1: Well <laughs> no. We just keep making this old one also.
0: That's awesome. <laughs> uh, so what you end up having is multiple vices. Yeah. So um, So you were you were telling me before that everything everything's made and made. That for the vices, the vices. Everything's made and made. So awesome. Um And before that, was everything made in New Hampshire? Um, Well, certainly New Jersey.
1: I don't know really what was going on in the Bill Hunter 70s, early 80s. Sure. Um, Certainly, you know, one of the foundries, the foundry that still makes our jaws, was the same foundry because there were receipts in the paperwork that went to the American Museum of Fly Fishing from the same foundry. Cool. So that foundry has been making the HMH jaw since early or mid to late 70s. Yep, yep. Um, and uh, so that's why, you know, I get hit on the internet all the time. What do you mean the HMH jaws? When did you start casting HMH jaws? <laughs> well, well, I didn't do any. I didn't make any changes there. Right. You know, we've been casting HMH jaws yep. since the 70s. So you have... So-
0: So you have how many different vices now? How many models?
1: Well, now we've got the the standard. We've got the Spartan. Yep. We've got two versions of the tube spinner vice now. Mm -hmm. We have got the ST vice, which is a fixed angle vice, Um, and then we've got the TRV, um, which is just in two different. Kind of show models. Yep, and I think that's it.
0: Yeah, I think that's it. That's six. Yeah, and so do the jaws that you make go into all of the different, or are there certain jaws for the certain vices?
1: Um, the what I'm going to refer to as the traditional cam Bill Hunter cam actuated Bill Hunter jaws go into all the cam lever actuated HMH jaw uh,
0: Gotcha, visics. gotcha. Um, but like the TRV is different because you have like the knobs... Correct. ...that lock it instead of the, the cam lever. Yeah, the
1: TRV really only comes with one jaw, one shaped jaw.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and is actuated by a, a 4 spoked knob on the front... Yeah. ...compared to the cam lever in the back. Yep. Yeah. Um... And you know, that definitely makes it a different, almost non traditional HMH vice. But, uh, you know, I had played with various true rotary vices. That's what I wasn't very imaginative with its name TRV, true (laughs) rotary vice. That's where it
0: came up. There you go. (laughs) Um, thanks for sharing because I I didn't know either, and I was. (laughs) <laughs> I forgot to ask. I was going to ask, it was uh, like,
1: I was very imaginative there, but uh, you know, um, you know, you can see behind it. You know, we we have a little bit of an inventory, but you know, I I tied on a Renzetti, I tied on a Peak, I tied on an original Law Vice, um, trying to find what features I liked, what features I'd improve upon, what what would I change, how would I change it, how would I hmh it? Yeah. Um, And, I mean, I blatantly tell everybody, and it's in print all over the internet, whatever, that, yes, the jaw is 100% inspired behind the law jaw for the TRB. I thought it was a great design. Mm. Um, I made some changes to it. Yeah. What's the law jaw? Well, the law vice was made, I think it was in the 80s, by Lawrence A. Waldron, L-A-W. Mm-hmm uh in the UK. Um and uh uh if you go on the internet and Google, you know, McFay ties, you know, a whole bunch of his nymphs, it's on an original law vice. Um they the law vices I guess they're still made if you're willing to wait and all. Yeah. But uh they're very hard to come by. They are very expensive mm-hmm. in the used market. Um, so I kind of liked the features it had, but I didn't like the fact that the the chassis that HMH is known for with that HMH stamped right in it, that chassis part was actually made out of Delrin plastic in the original laws.
0: Ooh. Well, you know, HMH. And what's it made of? What What do you make it out of? cast stainless steel. Gotcha. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the gold, that's the, uh, that's
1: the, actually this black, oh, the black part yeah, yeah, gotcha, right that you see on a vice we have right here in the office. But, um, so, you know, obviously I'm going to build my vice off the HMH chassis. Yeah. Um, the law vice did not have a way to adjust the height of the hook to the axis of rotation um, Easily. Mm. Yes, you could slide your hook up and down within the jaw, but I'm like, if we just add a pivot point, then you can tweak that pivot point up and then rotate the hook um, the, and get it perfectly in line with the axis of rotation. So everybody who's tied a fly is tied a woolly bugger. Instead of wrapping your chenille around the hook hand over hand... Yep it allows you to align the shank of the hook, the straight part of the hook, with how you rotate the vise, such that you're now going to rotate the vise and the hook together and hold the chenille and wind it on. And what that allows you to do is uh, a more consistent, um, especially if you're putting a a rib around a body, or even just, you know, wrapping, palmering a, a hackle,
0: Right, you're not so, using your hand, you're using the vice. You're
1: never letting go of the material, yep. which you're required to do with a hand-over-hand application. Sure. Sure. So you can get a little smoother. Um, and Nate, I'm sure, will account with a lot of practice. You can
0: be faster doing yeah. it that way. Much faster. Which yeah. is huge yeah. for you yeah. when you're tying bolts and bulk amount of flies. And, um, Would you say, like, what type of tires are you marketing to? Yes, Yes, everybody's <laughs> well, everybody, sure. But I, I mean, think, I think most people get like they get like that beginner fly tying kit when they first start out, right? And it's got that crappy little clamp vise in there, and it's like you can't even barely hold any hook in there, let alone a standard size twelve hook or something. It's well, you big, just so.
1: you just hit it right on the, the nail on the head there. Yeah. Um, you know, there was some post. Uh, I think it was actually with TU. You know what do people recommend for a fly tying kit? Hmm. And I typed, I piped in on this, uh, you know, blog. Don't buy a kit.
2: Hmm.
1: You know, th- this person actually uh, had been fly fishing a fair amount, was thinking about getting into, had taken a class, which is important. I say before yep. you drop any money on a kit or a vice. Or a pair of scissors, even yep. go take a class, yep. because there's certain people who a might not have the dexterity or the patience to tie flies. <laughs> right, don't spend multiple hundreds of dollars without taking a class. Yeah, so
0: that's the, really really good advice for people.
1: And then I said, don't go for the kit, right. because. The kit is going to give you a little bit of this, a little bit of this, and a crappy vise like you touched upon that's not – maybe it's going to hold a hook for the first 20 hooks, but it's going to begin to start slipping. You All right, it's going to start slipping, so now I'm going to crank down on that lever harder. Well, then you're going to bend the handle Mm -hmm. or this and that. I'm like, if you've taken the class, you know you like it, you've tied – Half dozen, dozen flies in the class. Got some practice doing it. How much do you want to spend on a vice? Buy the most or, you know, buy the best vice you can afford. Yeah. For us, that's in and around the $200 mark.
0: Yeah. That's a chunk of money. But that's really reasonable because, so for me, I started out with one of those crappy little vices. I didn't even have a kit. I think I just, I think someone just gave it to me. And then I bought one at Beans probably back in 2010 when I first started mostly getting really into fly fishing and started fly tying. I think I spent like 120 bucks on one. But I just got an HMH last year, which I'm embarrassed to say. But I did. And and it took me using a nicer vice to realize, like, wow, this thing, it just holds hooks better. I can go from – I can do tiny hooks, big hooks, like, and it wasn't – My old one, they'd slip, you know, like crank enough pressure down on it slip out. And it didn't matter how much they cranked down on it or whatever because it just, it wasn't built for that. You know, it was very, it was all smooth jaw, right? Some of yours are, some of yours aren't, right? We can talk about that in a second. But to go back to what you're saying about fly tying classes, in the winter, I teach uh, beginner fly tying classes at Elders Brothers Fly Shop. And we use the crappy like starter kit vices and it drives people freaking nuts yep. because they're just starting out and the hooks are falling out they're not staying in well and i'm having to go around and help everybody adjust or whatever and they're complaining about it and then they're falling on again and i just basically say guys listen these vices just aren't good like they're not what you need uh, especially starting out, like, you don't want that to be your frustration, right? Correct. You can't keep the damn hook in the vise. And that's what people end up, well, I, I tried
1: fly tying, but, you know, I bought this cappy vise, it wouldn't hold the hook, and I got fed up. Yeah. Well, that's not the thing to get fed up with. Yeah. The f- thing to get fed up with is tying twenty-two
0: hook or something that you can't <laughs> exactly. see or, you know. But for know, some people, that's a size 18, 16. Like, some yeah, people you, have a hard time with and that's, so, that's not the smallest thing that we fish, right? But it's yep. like tying them is different than fishing them and tying them onto your tippet. Like yep. tying them is a whole different story. And I've had people get so frustrated in those classes that, you know, when, they, when the fourth week comes around or whatever, they're like, you know, hey, I want to get some stuff. What do you recommend I buy? And just knowing that you were main made knowing nothing about your vices, like, I was like, go spend the money on a good vices. Go buy an HMH vise. And I never even used one. However, I love the fact that it was main-made, main, right? Yeah. Like, that was huge. And I also knew that it was going to be way better than whatever we are using, even though I never had used them before. Well. So, I, th- I think I sold three or four of them, to be honest with you. That's awesome. Yeah, just, just by, just by being like, uh, well, I'm well, sorry. I, I don't say. know if I sold them or if the crappy Vices sold yeah, them. Yeah, <laughs> Pretty much what it was, you know. <laughs>
1: well, it's about time for Jimmy to put an order in, so there get we ready go. for it. Perfect.
0: I'll let him know.
1: Um, <laughs> But, uh, awesome. no, I mean, you know, even my cheapest vice. I tell people, this is the last vice you'll
0: need to buy. Yep. We've got the full interchangeable jaws to it. Yeah, so talk about so, those for a second. What do you mean that they're interchangeable? Like, I know, I know but what if... Well, you good?
1: know, the standard cam levered HMH vices, um, the jaws unscrew from the cam lever mechanism, such that the vast majority of my jaws are, the vast majority of my vices are sold with an omni-jaw. Well, the omni-jaw for the fly fisherman will hold from size 2-aught hook, which is a big saltwater hook, to size 20, which is, you know, not the smallest, but is a
0: small hook. People don't tie much smaller than 20, for the most part.
1: Um, so it kind of...
0: It covers the
1: the vast majority of what people will tie and fish these
0: days. And is it so, smooth or is it a...
1: It's a smooth jaw. Yeah. Um, because, you know, in those sizes, you're. it's not terribly long. It's not a terribly hard hook to hold. Sure. So, um, but... You know, if you want to go smaller, we have a micro jaw. Now, the micro jaw is specified for size 18 to size 32 hooks. Wow. Now, a size 32 hook is, you know, an eighth of an inch
0: long. It's, you know. I think people only know about a size 32 because they're just amazed by it. They just want to see one. Yeah. And just be like, wow, that's incredible. But in their head, they're going, I'm never tying that, and I'm probably never fishing that. Let's (laughs) be honest. And I actually, you know,
1: because, you know, over on the other side of the the shop here is a full machine shop. Yeah. um, I actually had a guy at the International Fly Tying Symposium probably about five or six years ago. The biggest hook he tied on was size 22. Wow. He specialized in micro... Flies. So, what I did was, I took one of our really small micro jaws and ground it even smaller for him (laughs) such that he. And he must tie with a microscope or something. Right. But he sent us pictures, and they're like perfect little atoms in a size 32 with a dub body and splayed, you know, grizzly hackle wings. And you're just like unbelievable. That's incredible. But, you know, you'd never fish it. Right. What size...
0: Tip it? Would you put through something like I know that. that? You know, a size ten
3: X, eight X, and good luck seeing the fly on the surface anyway. You have yeah.
0: to put it behind something huge. Yeah, and just but use the other one as an indicator. So That's you know, crazy.
1: micro jaws are size eighteen to thirty two. because yeah. Thirty two is really the smallest commercially available. Yeah. Uh, I actually—that was the one thing I came home with from the British fly fishing fair—was a box of. Size 32s. That's the
0: only place I could find to buy them. Do you you remember? I'll ask you the same question too. Do you remember like the first time you caught a big fish on like a size 20 or size 22 fly and just being like, how? Like it's like wedged between a tooth in the (laughs) back there or something, right? And you're like, how is this even possible that it stayed on, you know? Do you remember? Do you remember even a
1: 12 inch brookie on a
3: size 20 or 22 and the thing's jumping and Going, true. yeah you do you remember it it's true yeah.
0: do you remember your
3: first time yeah and I also remember my last time this fall <laughs> 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 I didn't stay connected <laughs> and yeah. I worked at it all day too, too. Uh, I mean, do you remember the
0: first fish you caught on like a small one do you even know what type of fish it was
3: it would have been a brook trout because yeah. I would have been back in my days of hunting hunting small streams up in the Bethel area
0: yeah mine was a 20 inch landlocked salmon right size 20 green cast larvae and I I didn't tie it I remember I bought that one because I don't think I was thinking about tying stuff that small but I just remember being amazed that a fish that big would one eat that now I'm not so amazed by it but at the time it was and it then I was like how in war, like the world do I keep that on you know it's just crazy crazy to think about that
3: yeah I, I mean it's I mean, half the
0: size of your pinky fingernail you know? no it's they're, yeah. they're
3: incredibly small but yeah. think about that. I mean, we had the the twenty twenty club in Maine for the longest time. Yeah, twenty inch fish on a size twenty. What was that about? Just see if you could get into the twenty twenty club. Yeah. You know, catch a twenty inch plus fish on the size twenty fly. But where was
0: that like publicized, or was there like a? I don't think it was this ever this really publicized. Kind of like I think
3: it was just a thing. Yeah. You know, I, I think anchor. we should
0: resurrect that. That's cool. I, That's I think cool. Think a
3: great idea. I mean, just get a patch like I'm, the like the two like the big buck patch. Yeah. Yeah. There 2020 we go. Twenty twenty club. The I think 2020 Greg and I were talking about that together this this fall on one of our old jaunts. The. It's great idea. the Twenty twenty club.
0: It's impressive. Hell yeah. It doesn't happen often, but I mean... No, you, you work for it, for sure. Yeah. But they're eating that stuff. And that's, you know, that's like what you tell clients or new people. You're like, think about you. Like, you'll eat like a 1000 cheese that's in a day, but you're not going to sit here and just eat giant, you know, fish only use giant streamers all day long, you know? But, I mean, hell, you can hook into the same fish four times if you keep fishing those little tiny things. Well, They're eating. That's what they're eating all the time. And...
1: I was on Grand Lake Stream the last weekend of the season, so the 20th of October. Mm-hmm. They weren't taking streamers. Right. They were taking 18s and 20 jigs. Yep. Yeah. You know, bounced right in front of their nose. Mm-hmm. But we were running 120 cubic feet per second, and it was gin clear. Yep. So. It's going to be really, really. Really small. Yeah. And they were wary and all that stuff, but that's what it takes. Yes, it does.
0: Yep. Yeah. It's crazy. I think the, uh, not to go off on a tangent, but, and Greg's been posting some stuff about them lately, but I think, like, blueing olives are just, they're super underrated. Like, just how much there are in the water systems. I mean, oh, yeah. They they might be more prevalent than caddis, and you just don't really see them or know, you know, or some sort of midge. like. Well, yeah, yeah, certainly midges, you yeah. know, you'll look across the water and you'll see it's thousands crazy. of midges. It's crazy. People are oh, what is that? And I'm like, eh. Midge. Don't worry. <laughs> We're not going to be fishing anything that small today. Uh, <laughs> it's your first day. <laughs> it's a size 24, a uh, little midge or a little right. tiny mayfly. I'm like, yeah. 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 They're like, oh, you think you would take that? I'm like, probably, but I don't think that we could fish for it. I don't think it's going to yeah. happen. So, um, so all right. So, back to the, back, back to the vices. Back now. to the vices and the jaws. The jaws, Yeah. So, we so we've covered the, the little stuff. Yeah. And the omni. And the omni. But on
1: the other extreme, if you're into the bigger saltwater stuff, we've got the Magnum Jaw. Nice. And the Magnum Jaw is 6-odd. I mean, it will hold a 20. Nobody in their right mind would use a Magnum Jaw to hold a 20. I tell people, (laughs) you know, your size 10s. Yeah. That's realistic. Yeah. But unlike either the Micro or the Omni, the Magnum Jaw is grooved is serrated gotcha. so it gives a little more bite to it yeah um and uh so that's you know on the biggest stream so you know you buy the 200 vice and get two jaws which would be about another hundred dollars to it so for 300 dollars, you can now tie from size six odd mm-hmm. to size 32 hooks that's awesome with one set one vice right yeah and there are other accessories you can add. You can add a bobbin rest. You can add a profile plate. You know, um, so, you know. What's a profile plate? Profile plate really is just a background plate. Yeah. And what it does is it gives
0: you a, a solid background color. Oh, yeah, like white. Like, like if you're going to take a picture, but it's more so for your eyes, right? It's more yeah. so for your
1: eyes yeah. for a long time, okay. for pictures. Um, I use them a lot. Uh, when I'm tying at shows and things like that, because there's so much background stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you look at my roll top desk, there are feathers and there's stuff and there's everything. True. When you put the background plate behind it, you can see the profile of the fly much
0: better than all the stuff cool. that's going on behind. Yes. I never thought about that. I always thought it was more for photo purposes, but that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. it And uh, it gives you a better list. view of the fly. Yeah. Pr- Profile on the floor. Do you use one in your I do.
3: I do sometimes. Yeah. yeah. It, it yeah. depends on what's going on with me and time of the day and all that stuff. But I, I have one that I quite often have on um, my uh, my Spartan vice. Yeah. yeah.
0: I also feel like a roll-top desk is also an underrated fly tank thing you got to have. Oh. Well, no, it
1: ends up being a place where you can stash you stuff get, and fill floors with stuff. You, you just collect, collect more stuff in
3: it. <laughs> Oh, God.
1: Come on, that one's five feet long and three feet deep. There's yeah. so much real
0: estate there, you'll get lost in it. That's like yeah. mine. Mine, mine was built. Mine was built by the Amish out of Ohio. Yep. And some guy had moved here. He had his stuff in storage for eight years since he moved to England. He was from Chicago, and he was living in this little house in South Portland. And I just saw it for sale on Craigslist, and uh, he was asking 225 bucks for it, and he paid 1,800 for it it's five feet long it's about three feet deep like you're saying it's cool it has a little like trap door on the bottom and stuff and it's beautiful quality and there's no way it's been 225 he just bought this like tiny house on the water in South Portland had no room for any of the stuff he had in storage so he was like I just gotta get this out of here type things. Thing. man what a score that was there you go but it's great because he's your shit's everywhere and you just go yep. down and there it goes <laughs> well that similar story with that one but that one
1: you know the shop Getting back a little bit to the history, yeah, the shop was in Brunswick. That's right. After 2015, our lease expired there, and I was tired of driving 61 miles back each way. Yeah. So I moved it to the mill in Biddeford,
2: mm-hmm.
1: not about a mile and a half from here. And that roll-top desk actually was part of the Pepperel Mill complex. Cool. But I bought it in Portland. And a similar situation as to it was so big for this small house they in Portland and all that a guy put it on Craigslist and my son saw it. Nice. And uh, it was so big. I mean, at that time we we still have it, but we have a Ford Excursion. Yep. And it wouldn't fit in there. So we happened to be moving some stuff for HMH down to Brunswick from Brunswick down to Bedford. We showed up with the open trailer and just plopped it on the Sweet. open trailer and brought it in. It's good timing. But uh, yeah, it's fun to get that through the door and everything, I'm sure. But it makes a great fly time platform. And uh, as you said,
0: you can kind of hide things away. Great kids can't get in there, dog can't get in there. Yeah, you just hide it all away in there. Well, just, just wait because right next to
1: it, you'll see is another cabinet that actually was a blueprint.
0: That's what this is here. That's, That's what, what that, was. that was. Wow,
1: and each one of those drawers is about an inch and a half, two inches high. Yep, but it makes it great. Every one of those drawers well, some of them have blueprints in them, but from about a third of the way down. Is all fly tying material. Nice. Because then it's only one layer thick, so you can immediately <laughs> go in and go, yep, I want the Cree neck. I want the Grizzly neck. Uh, I want the Coachman neck, whatever. Things aren't buried. Uh, so that that's your next investment. Yes. Is a big cabinet like that. I don't
0: get started. I'm <laughs> looking at it, I'm like, huh, oh, that's a sweet. It, it reminds me of like at fly shops though, like the drawers they have that pull out. It's yeah. just a lot thin, more thin. Yeah. But. That's really cool, but uh, then that one, that one
1: actually, the trolley museum in Kennebunkport port had got that from the um, MTA in Boston. Nice. And when I got it, every one of the drawers was labeled, you know, uh, Cambridge Square or Longfellow Bridge, or and they had the blueprints of the trolley tracks in yeah, there. They just left it all in there. Well no, they saved the blueprints and they didn't have gotcha. room to store the cabinet. Gotcha. Um, so I got the cabinet and refinished <laughs> it and turned it into my fly tying cabinet.
0: You got a lot of history here. So So you moved here in twenty sixteen or fifteen?
1: We moved to downtown
0: Biddeford in two thousand and sixteen. Right. Yep. And then we moved
1: here uh two thousand and nineteen. Nice. Um, no longer downtown, in the mill the disadvantage of the mill was it was uh, about 600 feet from when you walked into the building to when you walked <laughs> into the physical shop of HMH. Um, wow, that's just a big, a big eye. labyrinth.
3: Oh, it was difficult to find. Yeah. yeah. Just, oh, wow. Just trying to get to HMH. Yep. Yep. I mean, it was a
1: gorgeous location for us because I was looking right at the Cataract Falls as they dropped into the ocean yep. of the Saco River. Yeah. And, you know, certain times of the year you'd look out there and there'd be seals sitting, getting stuff as it comes over the falls, uh, you know, saw... Comrade trying to choke down an 18 inch striped bass, not too successfully one time. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, it was a great location, but, you know, bringing 1,900 pounds of steel bases in all this labyrinth of Corridors and things like that. Yeah. Where now we're more industrial situation. The tractor, trailer, truck can back up to a loading dock and off it comes. Right. So yeah. it works much better for the shop.
0: That's great. Now. Um, so, so, what's your most popular vice that you sell? Oh, by far we sell the most Spartans. Spartans, yeah. yeah. What's, what do people love about it?
1: Um, a, it's a mid range priced vice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not. As big as the standard, um, but not as small as the ST vice. So yeah. it's right in the middle. Um, again, full interchangeable jaw system, uh, adjustable head angle to it. Uh, it's a good, you know, personal vice. Yeah. Um, you can travel with
0: it if you need to. You can
1: travel with it if you need to. Yeah. Uh, you could buy the C-clamp kit or the pedestal if you have it the other way.
0: Yeah. Um, so all of yours you can, come with a pedestal?
1: Well, you can buy them either way. You can? Okay. Yep. Um, the vast majority here in the States are pedestals. The vast majority in Europe and uh, are C-clamps. Why? No idea. No idea. It's just, that's the way it is. Interesting. I mean, Interesting. Yeah. What do you think?
3: I, I don't know. Yeah. I, it's, maybe it's just the way that guys are brought up over there on the furniture they're tying on.
0: Yeah, I mean, I love the idea of a pedestal because I don't have to be on, like, the edge of a desk, or yeah. you can move it kind of wherever you want, or have it any type of surface, and...
1: Yeah, and I like it. You know, you can set it away if you're gonna, you know, pair up some wings or something like that, and then you pair up your wings, and then you can slide it forward and do what you need to do. Certainly not the way that way. Yeah, yeah. But wasn't what I started with. You know, my old universal clamp right to my desk. Yeah, that's what I started with. Yeah. Um, But uh, but no, you know, we make them in C clamps. We make them pedestals. We sell kits to convert them back and forth. Um, but yeah, the the Spartan is our best seller. Yeah, um, and you know the pro tires like Nate tend to go with the standard or now the TRV. Yep. Um, for true rotary. Yep. Um, just you know, comparison between the Spartan and the standard. The standard's got a little bigger you know, knobs to it, a little bigger lever to it, so it's a little more ergonomic.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I find, you know, i got fairly big, clunky machinist hands, that the standard, I can rest my kind of soft part of my palm on the chassis, and I'm right there at the jaw for holding materials and everything. Yeah. Um, so it's a little more ergonomic if you're doing long tying sessions, yep. things like that.
0: Yeah, and so, I don't, I don't know that a lot of people think about those things unless that's what you're doing. Yeah. Like if you're like Nate, just cranking out, I don't know, what, a couple dozen flies a day on average. Yeah. You know, and it's like, you think about those little things. The more you're doing, it. like, all right, how can I make this be more ergonomic? You know, ergonomic and feel good, or how can I do this so I can be faster because that's how you make more money, or that's how you just get through them, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> two two mindsets I, there. Yeah,
3: definitely. But you also get to the point where you're thinking long term about your own health in yep. body too and you know I I've noticed that ergonomics is a big thing now uh, wrist wise just from wrapping so much thread that's crazy you know that's crazy height of the vice I actually my first HMH vice was a Spartan I bought it at L.L. Bean at the old hunting and fishing store back in like 06 07 yeah um, and it was a, a it was a clamp-on model, and I actually cut the stem on it and shortened it a little bit and put it into a regular base. But it's actually longer than a standard stem for a base would be. It's just because it fit me better. And that happened to be on what I was tying at at the time. Go
1: ahead. And we do that quite frequently. Yeah, for people who say, oh,
0: I want the shorter.
1: I want it shorter. Usually people don't buy them shorter than the 6-inch Standard pedestal base. Yeah, but the number of times that people call up, hey, could I have a one that's an inch and a half longer? Yep. Yeah, I say, you know, I had one guy who called up and said, "Can I have a twelve-inch stand rod?" And I'm like, <laughs> "Well, wait a minute, timeout. What are you doing? Because that's not practical. Because by the time you start pulling on the thread, oh, even no. you're, you're moving whole thing, <laughs> it's tip it right over. Tip it right over. Yeah. Um, so I persuaded him to go down to the, you know, the stock. C clamp stand rod is a nine inch stand rod, yeah. And even that means it's
0: standing up pretty tall.
1: Yes. You think it's he like, just
0: wanted it closer to his face?
1: Yeah, to see and it more I mean, clear or whatever. Um, there was some. Uh, I don't. I think this guy had uh, some physical limitation. Okay. You know, something yeah. in his neck or something like that, so he yeah. wanted to keep his neck straighter. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but. You know, um, I I take and cut those nine inch stand rods down, put a flat on. Not once a week, but three times a month. Yeah,
0: for various people. Yeah. So you should uh, you should make a video of your fly tying area area at some point, or like your ergonomics, like how do you work your chair?
3: (laughs) Give me a while to clean it up first. I mean, hey, I'm just
0: thinking like it'd be kind of cool because. Actually let's let's put you on the spot a little bit here. So how are you affiliated with HMH besides loving <laughs> tying on their devices? So we talked earlier like what's your
3: title? You <laughs> just wear a bunch of hats here. You just wear a bunch of hats. No, uh, social media and pro team management basically here for John and I've been about a year. Um, maybe going on two now. Yeah, yeah but yeah. Pretty close pretty close to it. Yeah, I think it was well. It was right before Christmas of last year because I, I got a bunch of vices to take the Christmas photo for. That's right. Social media yeah. page last year. So. But then you
1: were pro team before that for a couple of a years. A
3: couple of
0: years, yep. So
3: yeah. and um. again I've been, you know, tying on an HMH vice since the 07 era. Good, yeah, that
0: was your original one. Yeah. How did you guys get linked up? <laughs>
3: <laughs> Nate started harassing
0: me about
1: being on the pro team. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. well, I'm <laughs> sure you get it. that though, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Um, how many people? How many people do you have on pro team, and what's that mean for people too who don't know?
1: Well, I mean, Nate and I are restructuring <laughs> the pro team, but you know, it's people who uh, are in the industry, whether they're guides or pro tires or. Um, you know, I've got some guys who write a lot of books and all about fly fishing and fly tying, uh, Rick Mm Kustich.
2: um,
1: you know, uh, other guys, you know, Britta Fortis or Gunnar Bremer, who have quite an internet following, uh, social media following, things like that. Um, you know, it is one of those situations. I don't, necessarily go out, we don't necessarily go out and recruit these people, these sure. people approach us, they gotta like our product
0: yeah. well, I see um, so much of that, now. you see so much of that now on Instagram like people are just starting out and they're tagging all these companies Sam's yeah. and HMH. I see a bunch of people tagging HMH yeah we see them too.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's,
0: it's but, but it starts conversations for you right and yeah. it allows you to kind of see and um that's cool. But, you know, yeah. we've
1: got... Ooh, what are we up to? That's 20, what I was going to ask you 20 about. people Yeah, or twenty so. twenty-two yeah. somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, these are... It, I always refer to it as got to be a win-win. Right. You know, we'll help promote them. They help promote HMH. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's what it is. You know, it's a mutual mutually beneficial
0: relationship yeah. right and it's not like they need from you it's not like oh I need new vice this month I mean, like you get you get one vice right and it's like this is what you use or maybe different jobs and stuff like that yeah
1: and certainly you know if I come out with some new products and new ideas and things mm-hmm. like that um, I let them play with it first as some of the other thing is they come to me you know uh, Craig Buckby is one who guides down on the Delaware river and all in, and, uh, he was using this little tool, um, it's actually used for a knitting machine to sit there and tie, when you tie a, uh, a hopper pattern or something like that, you use pheasant tail and you put a knot in the leg or not in the f- single oh, strand no. of the feather yeah. to make it kind of crank. Crinkles, yeah, like it without like rubber. rubber legs. Yeah, it
3: yeah, makes the knee of the hopper. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: so uh, he was using this little sewing machine hook, so knitting machine hook, and I'm like, well, that's that's great, but that looks like it's a pain to hold. And he's like, yeah, you kind of have to pinch it between your fingers and all of a sudden, I'm like, why don't we put it in a handle and make it kind of more ergonomic, easier yeah, to yeah. hold on, or easier to use. Yeah. So I made up a couple of them, sent one down, and you know, that's a new product.
0: That's cool.
1: So that's kind of what some of the protein does. Yeah,
0: that's a, and that's great and it's great that you are listening. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, hey, I just want you in here because you're a big name fly tire and I want to see that you're using my, you know, I want people to know you're using my vices like now, you're listening to people and yeah. making changes. I mean, these are the people that like Nate that you need to hear from, right? It's like
1: Well, otherwise, you know, I heck, I got my nose assembling you know nose to the table over there assembling vices i don't have my ears to the ground all the time right um and especially now you know it is crazy busy i get one order out and there are two more that come in same time
0: it's great and you're doing you're doing business all over the world too right yep
1: we're doing business all over the world we just shipped uh, i mean i just shipped a trv to australia try to do that these days um it had to leave dhl Hmm. um but, uh, yeah, we sh- I ship product around the world on a monthly, on a weekly basis. Yeah.
0: Um, so I'm not, not to put you on the spot here, but what makes HMH devices different than the, the Regals, the Renzettis, the
1: other, um, other
0: big companies out there? <laughs> to be
1: politically correct, everybody does things, everybody holds a hook well. Hmm. It's just a some do it in a different manner than others Mm -hmm. you know Regal's got kind of a spring loaded clamp mechanism that well that spring tension holds up but it's not really adjustable that's what it is Um, you know Renzetti you know holds it by a clamp mechanism um, but they're kind of O-rings and there's some other parts and pieces that kind of wear out get brittle things like that Yep. You know, if you've been in the industry as long as HMH, as long as Regal, as long as Renzetti, you do the intended purpose. Otherwise, you wouldn't be around. Exactly. What makes HMH different is, I think, the simplicity by which we do it. Yeah. You know, on our standard cam lever vices, you can adjust how easy it is to turn the hook over while still being clamped. You can adjust how hard you clamp down on the hook. Yep. And you can adjust the angle of the head to make it, you know, a little steeper, a little shallower of an angle to ease your tying.
0: That's it. That's the only adjustment you have. I love the cam lever. It's awesome. But, like, your new TRV is it's two knobs, right, basically? Well, TRV, you can
1: adjust how easy it is to turn over. You Mm -hmm. can adjust the head angle. And similarly, you can adjust how tight it clamps down on the hook yep. for different sizes.
0: Yep.
1: Um, you do have one added pivot as to, and I call that more head angle, but one added pivot to align it with the axis of rotation. But again, it's kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, Mark Pettigine makes an absolute gorgeous vice and it's us it's made in Switzerland it's a Swiss timepiece um and but and you know they come with a very expensive price tag and they look beautiful and from an engineering standpoint I love them
0: right but the average the average fly fisherman yeah tires not
1: the average especially somebody who's in the earlier mid range of tying experience and skill and all that stuff um you know it will t- it will hold the hook for you. Yep. It holds yeah. the hook beautifully and is a work of art almost. Yep. Um, but from an engineer, I'm like, yeah, it's it's got too much adjustability in my standpoint. Uh, and I know Mark what well, Mark actually started tying on an Hmh vice. Right. And uh, so, um, you know, you can go as complicated as you want or we're kind of at the simpler side. Yeah, right?
0: which people would definitely appreciate. And yeah. also in terms of like customer service, I mean they call about something, they're talking to you. Yeah, they're talking you to you. You made the vice with your hand. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like
1: And especially the T R V. Most people, you know, they call a question as your T R V yeah, okay, and you know, chatting and well, you know, when I thought of it, I put this adjustment in it. I put this and they're like wait a minute wait a minute you're the one who designed the TRV and I'm like <laughs> yeah. yeah I'm the one who designed yes. it and I build every TRV that's out there <clears throat> that's awesome and uh, that's you know people you don't get that service no anymore
0: no because uh, I, I assume I could be wrong but I'm sure other vice companies are doing stuff overseas or they have kind of like a more of a Structured manufacturing, where you have all these other people doing it, and like you. I mean, you're talking to the owner, and you're talking to the creator, and you're talking to the manufacturer. Yep. Right? like it's pretty. It's yeah. pretty cool.
1: No, I mean, obviously, I don't make all the knobs, all the you right. Know, right, and I have foundries, as we talked about, that cast the jaws <clears throat> and yeah. all that stuff. And those are
0: all over Maine, you said, right? Yeah, like, they're all in the state of Maine
1: here Um, and we have that main main endorsement from the state. Awesome. Um, so you know, knobs are made in Portland, bases are cast in Lewiston. Uh, everything is assembled right here in the shop in Bedford. It's great. So um, awesome. not just made in the USA, not just made in New England.
0: It's made, made in Maine. Maine. Yeah, which is what we love as Mainers, don't we?
1: There, there was a meme going around uh, Facebook or something like that. Made in Maine products don't get stuck in containers. Waiting to be unloaded. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs>
0: that's a good point. They're right here and they're ready to go. And, you know, I think I think for people listening, like, if you don't have an HMH device and you're pretty serious about tying, I mean, it's not a bad price standpoint. I mean, it's, it's right around the same as all the others and maybe even a little bit less. At least, you know, at least go try out the lower mid-price, mid-price product. And, I mean, I can tell you that i I love mine. Like it's such a difference. And I'm not I'm not a serious fly tire. I tie flies for myself and for my clients and that's it. I don't sell any nothing. And for me it's it's for someone who doesn't tie like me, right? Like a couple dozen a day, if not more, sometimes, right? Yeah. And for me it's just like there's just this added comfort with it. My hooks never falling out. It just fits ergonomically and stuff. And I think but what's crazy about it is to be very brutally honest with you. I think like eighty percent of why I love it is just freaking Maine right here. Like, I just, love <laughs> that. Like, I don't know. I'm just a proud Maine guy. I am, and that's, I love the that's idea. That's
3: really that. what drew me to them too was the fact that they're made in Maine and they're, you know their quality. It's legit, man. We, the
0: world, the not to go off on a tangent, but the world needs more of like stuff being made in their community and, Correct. and yeah. the world being community based. And I think I think that gets. I mean, I live in Saco. And I feel like I don't know anybody in taco and it's not a huge city by any means, but it's like that sense of community is kind of gone. And I think that's why I'm drawn to things like this, where it's like, man, it's made here. This is made by people here. Like it's helping support our economy here. It's well, it's the ultimate. And that's when in 2015
1: we did have, we had our stripping baskets made overseas, um, In the past, we had had the Solstice Vice made overseas, Mm -hmm. Um, and I was like, no, bring it back. Yeah. And yes, I haven't found a stitcher to make my stripping baskets here in Maine, but that's not one of the main, main products. Yeah. Um, You know, would I like to get flow fold or something like that to stitch that? Heck yeah. Yeah. I would love that. Um, if you're listening,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> but uh, they're another you know main outdoor brands yeah. company because we're part of the main outdoor brands group. Sure. Um, but uh, um, but that was one of the things I did was you know when I was in the firefighting industry, we were getting stuff from around the world. And uh, in a way, with all the crisis of container ships and all that stuff, thank God I'm not in that industry right now. Yeah, that's crazy. But uh, I would be buying aluminum forgings from Taiwan, and I had to order them 90 days before we would ever need them to be in the machine shop. Yep. Yeah. Because it would take them 30 days to make them. Right. Then 30 days shipping and then that 30 other
0: days would be your buffer, and we'd mess it.
2: Well, see, I, I think now. that's
0: what's lost upon people is that they think doing stuff overseas, it's like, all right, it's better from a price point. I can have a higher profit margin. But, like, that convenience also of, like, you can call somebody up in and You can go yeah. drive and see somebody in Lewiston and say, hey, what's going on? Or, hey, you know, I really need this. And it's like you just have that better connection with them, you know. It's not just some random place across the world. Right. And, uh, you know, even the stripping baskets, when they
1: were made in China, you know, we would have to bring in, you know, a thousand stripping baskets at a time. Exactly. That's a lot of money. And then there were brokerage fees to bring it in. Right. And by the time push came to shove, it was like, oh, I could pay 50 cents, a dollar more to have them stitched in the United States by a small company down in Arkansas who I need a hundred of them I call them up and they're like yeah we'll ship you a hundred in three weeks now I don't have to tie up all that money right now I got a quicker response time
0: so it's a win-win yeah exactly you know exactly and and like you said I mean a dollar more 50 cents a more I mean yeah. it's not it's not keeping food off your table you know what I mean so that's I, great good for you they're, now they're marked. Made in USA. Yeah. Yeah. Man, so. we need so much more of that. And I mean, I, I, again, tangents here. But you walk into Walmart and you get on the, you know, the kitchen aisle, and there's nine different strainers for spaghetti, and you're like, why?
1: Yeah.
0: And half yeah. that gonna end up in <laughs> a landfill and be something that doesn't decompose and of the world anyway. It's like and there's not, just so much not crap, to, man.
1: Not to bash the logos on each one of the three of our mm-hmm. shirts here, but. Try to find a shirt that's
0: not made overseas. Yeah, can't do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. man, we got to get back to that. And I think people like, I'll, Here's my point. I'd pay eighty dollars more for a vice that's made in Maine than one that's made somewhere else that I don't really know. You know, just that part of it to me draws me in. Yeah. And I think that's important oh, for people. <laughs> I think it's important for people, yeah. though. You know, it's like, and you're putting money right back in your local economy by shopping local, and it's huge. I mean, that's that's what makes us go around and good for you though, for standing by it though. You know what I mean? Cause everybody can sit there and see dollar signs and,
1: well, yeah. And agree. dollar signs over the course of the past five years. Yeah. It probably would have saved me money there. Yeah. Uh, until a month and a half ago. And if I had a, you know, half <laughs> of a container full of stripping right. baskets sitting off the port of Los Angeles, Yep. I would be
0: yeah. stuck. Yeah. Exactly. Right yep.
1: now they're I actually you know, it was I think November when things started getting messy and all that stuff. I called up the manufacturer in Arkansas and said, Send me two hundred this time. Don't send me a hundred. Yep. They're sitting
0: right over there. That's great. Yeah. So ready to go. Yeah, and you can sleep well at night too, knowing that you're like investing back in your own state, which we all love me. I mean that's yeah. that's this is where we live most of us don't like to go south of Portsmouth if we don't have to or Kittery I mean Portland Portland there you go. <laughs> yeah. there you go. we're lucky to get
1: them to come down here to benefit
0: yeah. Yeah. so <laughs> we talked you into it today but uh yeah it's just it's uh it's just so great what you're doing and and I I wish that more people would do it and it would be so cool to have tons of different fly fishing stuff made here in Maine that's but on the scale that you're selling on you know mm-hmm. what I mean like you're not just selling to Maine people, you're selling over the world. Which is, I'm
1: selling which is to the, the world. You What's Maine on the map? Um, believe it or not, my largest customer is in the UK. It's great. My second largest customer is in Wells, Maine. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yep. It's yep. funny how that works. By far the largest shop uh, that buys from me is Wells,
0: Maine. Yeah. What is that shop?
1: Uh, that's uh, Breton's Fly Shop. Ah, right? yeah. Yep. And you know, Breton's, Breton's sells all, he does a, he's got a brick and mortar store, but mm-hmm. he also has got a huge online presence. That's right. And sells everywhere. That's right. Um, so, yeah, um, but, you know, HMH, you know, those main guys, you know, starting in, you know, York, Elders Brothers, mm-hmm. moving up, you know, Breton's has got HMH. Yep. Um, uh, Cabela's has some HMH. Yep. Uh, All Points has HMH. Mm-hmm. Beans is HMH. Then I guess you're up to Annika in Brewer. Yep. Yep. Has got HMH. Nice. So, you know, within about thirty miles of pretty much other than way up Roostic and
0: that, you know, HMH is in the shops. Yeah. So it's uh. great. It's just a, it's a nice thing to walk in and see that, and you know it's just that main touch to it. And um, are you? Uh, I've seen that shows are starting to take off again yep. a little bit. You got some scheduled shows you're gonna be at. In yep. Future?
1: Definitely, um, you know, everything being equal, we'll be at the Marlboro Fly Fishing Show, which is what the second week, uh, second weekend of January. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll dive in. In to Edison, New Jersey, largest fly fishing show in the world, and that's the last weekend in January. Mm-hmm. Um, and then those are the two hard and fast ones that we know about. Um, pondering, inter- uh, the uh, what IFTS International Fly Tying Trade Show, which is in Salt Lake City, Utah. Is it always in Salt Lake? No, this would be the first it's year De- it was. In it Denver. used to be in Denver. Denver. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that one's in March. And uh, we've been invited back to the British Fly Fishing Show. But I think just with the whole travel scenarios, we may pass this year. Mm. But hopefully we'll be back in 2023 there. Nice. Yeah. Um, then there's some other smaller shows uh new hampshire show um possibly go back up to brewer to their cabin fever reliever with the penobscot fly fishing group or club or whatever that is yeah so yeah you know the world's getting
0: back into it i'm so excited for some of these things to start back up the fly tying classes or just going to some of those expos and shows again yep I had to throw this out there because you said it so many times earlier, but in 2010, I believe it was 2010, I hadn't been fly fishing too long at that point. You said the names Dave Whitlock and Lefty Craig. Him, so those two, and Kelly Gallup spoke at L.L. Bean at their fishing expo in the spring. And I had Man, I had wow. no idea who any of them were. <laughs> and knowing now, I would have yeah, been like yeah. starstruck. And it's funny, right? But... uh when you were saying those names earlier and you mentioned the Bean Expo, I, I thought of that I was going to yep. throw that out there. That was so cool. I talked to Kelly Gal for like 20 minutes. I had no idea who the guy was. <laughs> <laughs> none. None at all. That was cool. Yeah. Um, but, well, I mean, that's the cool thing
1: about the fly fishing industry is those people are approachable. Well, they they are. They're just, they're just you know, guys your fish. We had in that collection of papers, there was a letter from Dave Whitlock to Bill Hunter. So I called Dave Whitlock up, chatted with him. I'm like, why aren't you still with HMH? And, well, there were some things that transpired, and, you know, he's on to another vice and all that stuff. But, you know, these people, you know, they are approachable. Yeah, yes. You know, um, uh, every time I go to the Penobscot Club uh, show in Brewer... You know, I sit down with Dave uh, Klausmeier, editor of Fly Tire magazine. That's crazy. You know, it's what's cool. That's yeah, what's right. cool about this. Yeah. It's very cool. So we're all,
0: you know, we all put our pants on one leg at a time. Yeah, we do. And um, uh, any upcoming announcements or stuff you want to know about? I mean, you can share, maybe not share, stuff to be on the horizon to look um, out for? I would only say, and I've been saying this
1: for like two years, but I think we're finally getting close to releasing a left-handed TRV. Cool. Now, you know, <laughs> people Is that don't... that just for
0: Nate? <laughs>
3: So I could tie with both hands. Yeah, that's <laughs> it.
0: <laughs> I forget. Oh. You're, I, see, you're ambidextrous with so many things. I can't remember what it is you do with which hand. I don't know which one you fish with, which one you're right with. I, I tie righty. You tie righty. You fish lefty.
3: I fish both. I fish both hands.
0: Wait, you fish righty and reel righty. That's what
3: it is, right? Yeah. I but know. I. That's I, not that uncommon. I, no, it's that's not at all. weird to me. But originally well, reels were set that way. Yeah, that's correct. They are right, yeah. 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 Man. Um, But, uh... No that was actually <laughs> never lost a fish go there right no <laughs> there you go Just because of stupidity no, it's not because stupid of my real
1: <laughs> Well I mean that was one thing that I was really conscious about doing when I took the two-handed fly casting class at Beans with Craig euchre was making sure I taught myself you know how to cast with you know left hand down but then also your more dominant right hand down because yes. actually that's what you're doing the majority of your work with on a two-handed cast Yep. um no i mean i think everybody should learn how to cast with both hands you know sure. their environment their situations where it definitely comes in handy wear out one arm switch to the
3: other double your fishing time
0: it's a good point it's a good point it's not a bad idea for people either and I, I think i've done some stuff lefty but not just out yeah. of like curiosity can i do it what do I cast like when I go to the hand? Or
1: well, right? I I actually <laughs> probably <laughs>
0: cast better
1: left handed <laughs> because I pay attention to it. You know, it's muscle memory with your right hand. You have to point. think about it when you do it with your left hand. <laughs> that's actually a very
0: good point. Yep, that's a very good point. Um, so, well, that's great. Is there anything else you want to add? No, I mean, I. It's been I, great. It feels good to get back into the podcast and just talking to people. I'm well, glad
1: I'm kind of the,
0: the first one back. Yeah, you're the first one back, and we've been we've been God, we've been talking about this for like. I don't know, since I met you probably almost two years ago, some fly tying and stuff. And yep. It's, uh, it's good to finally sit down and see the shop. and um, If people are looking for you, what's your website? Certainly, um, you know,
1: tyingvice.com is the retail sales website. Yep. Um, you know, if you go to hmhvices.com, that tends to forward you immediately to it um but you can certainly email us at info at um in you know phone number it's 207 729 5200 love it and uh, you know we're on Instagram 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 and Facebook Nate's, yep, Nate's, Facebook Messenger it's very active on there yeah if Nate can't answer the question he'll forward it on to me
0: yeah um I- I can't imagine how many people that that others follow just from following Hmh because you do such a good job posting on other people who are tying whether it's just like a pro staff person or like a random person just tags Hmh you know yeah such a cool networking tool to have and doing a good job with it keep it up trying my best pretty good (laughs) it's great well and also also you can visit local fly shops and then John and Nate, you're going to go to the shows too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So these guys will be there and go chat them up. Go talk about it. Go share main stories.
1: Yeah. And I mean, if your local fly shop doesn't have HMH, and certainly there are fly shops that don't buy direct from us, we sell to distributors too. Sure. And also, your local fly shop may have HMH. I just don't know about it. Yeah. Um, But if they don't have it, tell them to call us. We're always looking to add more influence more
0: saturation to the whole mix as far as i know there are people all over the world that listen to this podcast i that's get awesome. to see like a little on the, the website i use for it i get to see the demographics and stuff and there's like south africa australia a bunch that, of stuff in europe there you go awesome. there's
1: there's your mate mate. we're going go. around <laughs> the world there
0: we go it's awesome so uh well thank you guys great yeah, to interview. you and uh Thanks for listening to another episode of the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast.